The following is a ReachMD XM160 special report. Welcome to a special report on Second Opinion Live, another in our continuing in-depth looks at the medical response to the Haiti earthquake. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. When we last talked to medical responders from the disaster in Haiti, it was still very much a search and rescue operation. Untold victims still lay under rubble, suffering injuries that the destroyed medical infrastructure had little chance of treating. And while the situation is still far from stabilized, the search and rescue crews have departed, and the next phases of recovery and rehabilitation are underway. The outpouring of aid from our country and scores of other countries and non-governmental organizations from around the world is helping, but the situation is far from ideal. Supplies are still not reaching those who need it most, resettlement camps are only just becoming established, and the medical situation is still dire. But now, weeks after the quake, when media fatigue has set in and the public has started to move on, this is when the medical community needs to step up its relief efforts and get involved. On this show, we'll discuss the continuing medical response to the earthquake in Haiti with a number of guests who have graciously agreed to be with us today. If the phone connection holds, our first guest is Dr. Anthony Alessi, ReachMD listeners know Tony as the host of NeuroFrontiers, produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. A practicing neurologist, Dr. Alessi is in Haiti now, having just arrived a couple of days ago to help. Tony, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you with us. We understand your travel arrangements to get to Haiti were pretty unique. Uh, how did you get down there, and who are you working with? Well, it was very interesting. Uh, this is my fourth trip to Haiti in the past 17 months. I first came down with Haitian Health Foundation in September of 2008 with uh, one of my daughters who is now in medical school at St. George's University in Grenada. And that's how I got introduced to Haiti. Um, I came back again with another daughter who also is in medical school at St. George's University. And I was here just in December. This time, uh, I couldn't get to Jeremy with Haitian Health Foundation, but they put me in touch with Father Rick Frechette and the Passionist Fathers. The Passionist Fathers are an order of Catholic priests, nuns, and brothers who do so much work here in Haiti and have built what was originally an orphanage is now a pediatric hospital. I work with Father Rick Frechette, who is not only a Catholic priest, but also a physician, a primary care physician. So I was in touch with them, and they were planning a trip down for a group of surgeons, nurses, and ear, nose, and throat, and uh, uh, urologists were coming from Greenville, North Carolina. So they put me in touch with them, and I was able to hook up with them. Uh, the travel arrangements were made by Rick Hendrick Motorsports, who donated their private plane to get us from Florida to Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Wow. Now, were you brought in, or are you there focusing mainly on neurological issues, or are you just managing general medical cases? It's kind of an interesting day, I'll tell you that. Uh, usually we start around 5 or 5.30. I make rounds on neurology patients, and there are quite a few of them here. As a matter of fact, I'm the only neurologist here uh, at this time, and it's sure uh, going to be a loss if we can't get another one here. Um, I usually make rounds at 6 a.m. At 7 a.m., we all go to Mass. Um, I've found that there's a real spiritual aspect to being here among this devastation, and it's a standing room only mass for not only Catholics but non-Catholics. Um, 8 a.m. we have a, a meeting of all the surgeons and uh, all the all the medical staff meet. Um, my job has taken on a different role. 
I made contact with another neurologist, a colleague, uh, Dr. Mir Etienne. Um, he is a Haitian-American neurologist who is a commander in the United States Navy and is stationed on the hospital ship Comfort. And he and I have worked an arrangement where the critically ill patients that cannot be treated here, he's arranged for transport for the Comfort. So typically, uh, I will fly out to the Comfort uh, by helicopter in the morning with whatever patients need care there or need a CT scan. In return, um, I get a manifest of patients that need to be transferred off the comfort who are not critically ill and or a post-op. There are many post-ops there, and they have to make room on the ship, as many people will know. So my job is to triage those patients on the USS Comfort and then see that they get transported back, typically by boat, um, to a place that should be about 20 minutes from here, but often takes two to three hours um, to get across town, uh, as you can imagine. So I bring the patients here, and we then admit them to our facility here. Now, you have to understand our facility. It's a pediatric hospital that typically has 80 beds. Uh, we now are running a census of 240, including the hospital, and many tents and cots on the outside. It is also the only rehabilitation facility in Port-au-Prince, and it has a, a, a campus in the back for uh, children with special needs that is being transformed to rehabilitation and prosthetics. But we haven't reached that phase yet. We're still taking care of acute trauma and acute neurologic injuries. Well, let me ask you a question to change tack, for instance. You're down there. How are you being taken care of? Where do you sleep, and who feeds you, and what are those conditions like? I sleep in a tent uh, uh, on the campus uh, with other physicians. The Italian government has taken a real interest in this facility. They brought in a portable hospital with their own ORs and their Army tents. So we sleep in Italian Army tents. There are six of us in a tent. We all brought our own tents. Um, but we sleep in uh, a uh, tent. There are six of us in there uh, on cots. We brought our own food uh, in terms of these meals ready to eat and uh, the tuna fish and things like that. We usually get to eat once a day at some point during the day, um, and uh, somebody from the Italian group always makes coffee in the morning. And uh, at times, if there's a lull late at night, um, one of my colleagues from Italy will make pasta. So uh, we're kind of flying by the seat of our pants as far as eating. Um, the uh, You don't have much time to sleep. As I said, we start early and usually don't wrap it up till about 11. I do my new consults in the evening when I return back from the ship um, and decide then who has to go over. Now, the typical, typical cases I'm seeing... We had a child this morning who came in in uh, uh, complex partial status epilepticus with secondary generalization, um, but had severe head injuries on the CT scan, so that child would remain there. We also have Dr. Powell, who works for USAID. She's a pediatric neurologist, um, and she's on the ship as well. Um, I just got finished seeing a um, six-month-old baby with a brachial plexopathy, um, we see uh, so much intracranial trauma, um, a lot of uh, skull fractures, uh, and spinal trauma. Today we sent someone out, um, I brought to the hospital with an L1 
uh, fractures with dislocation, uh, but neurologically intact. So she'll have a fusion there. We can't do spinal surgery here. So how long do you think you can operate at this pace before you really just burn out? Or how long do you think a physician can stay there? Very interesting. Um, I think it's about a week. I, to be honest with you, um, I thought, you know, we could, our arrangements were made. They had to be made a week. We thought we were going to be two weeks, but uh, the only way we could get out right now would, would be in one week. Um, I think if you're going all out the way we are, I think it's a one-week trip. Um, now, the, the amazing thing is Father Rick. Um, I, I don't know how he works at the pace he does. Uh, because he is up at 4 a.m. Um, just doing everything, um, in addition to seeing to the spiritual needs of everybody here. Um, he was just with a Haitian family. He's been here over 20 years and went to medical school after he had started the mission here. So I don't know how he works at the pace he does from 4 a.m. to 11 p.m. every night. Uh, was nonstop, and in the midst of this, he lost his mother, who lived in Connecticut, uh, to cancer, and had to fly back to um, administer to her. So it's been uh, crazy for him, and he's an inspiration to all of us um, to keep up the pace. But um, it's a brisk pace, that's for sure. What have you learned about yourself spiritually? You said this was a spiritual trip. What kind of strengths have you found in yourself? Good question. Um, it's very interesting because I, I found a lot of things. I found that so much is based not on technology. As a neurologist, a lot is based on my experience and, and what I've learned and to rely on my clinical skills. Spiritually, um, I've learned about the resilience of the Haitian people and the importance of just being kind to people. Although there's a language barrier, they know in your face, they know that you're here, and they understand that. And uh, Father Rick has made this a spiritual journey regarding anger and frustration. We're all angry about what happened here, but um, we know that we need to work with what we have. I've learned that medicine is truly global now, um, whether it be because of the Internet or whatever, but we're working side by side here at this facility with Italian physicians, German physicians, Slovak physicians, and everybody works so well together, and we all learn from each other. It is a spiritual journey, and you have to be very spiritually strong to put up with this and, and, and work in these conditions. Yeah, Tony, thank you. Can I make you. a quick pitch? I, sure. I have to tell you, we need to get people out of our facility, and what we're trying to do is give them a tent and give them some money so they can, because they have no home, they have no clothes, um, it's so hard to do. So we're looking for four-man tents. Now everybody's saying, well, don't say, Father Rick goes out in the street to try and buy things, and they're just not available. Um, he's been going everywhere, and we really need four-man tents. I'd like to give you the address. If anybody can get tents, knows somebody who owns a store with tents and is willing to donate them, please send them to Friends of the Orphans, Alfredo, A-L-F-R-E-D-D-O, Benitez, B-E-N-I-T-E-Z, 7175, Southwest 47th Street, number 207, Miami, Florida, 33155. Um, if you 
The tents are crucial, and money is crucial to go to CompassionWeavers.com. We'll put that on our website, and i got to tell you, from Matt and me, if I can find you a tent, we'll send you a tent. Absolutely. From us. All right? These people can use it. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Our next guest is Dr. Daniel Fitzgerald. He's part of the Center for Global Health at Weill Cornell Medical College and an internationally renowned specialist in infectious disease and tropical medicine. Dr. Fitzgerald recently co-authored a Perspectives article in the New England Journal of Medicine sharing his experiences in Port au Prince. Dr. Fitzgerald, thanks for uh, joining us today. Thank you. So we understand that uh, the team that you wrote about worked at, the clinic was located in the epicenter of the destruction itself, but not only did the clinic survive, it seems to have become a field hospital and a refugee camp. So how do you think the staff managed to convert this clinic into a hospital for thousands of people? The Haitian team is just amazing, uh, led by uh, Dr. Jean Pop and uh, Dr. Deschamps and Dr. Uh, Patrice Sever and, and many others. It, uh, before the earthquake, the clinic, it was a large outpatient AIDS and tuberculosis center and provided um, therapy to about 6,000 patients, uh, patients with HIV and tuberculosis patients. The, they had, because of, there's, Haiti has a history of political crises and political turmoil, also recently with the number of hurricanes, they had established a system beforehand, an emergency plan, that in the event of an emergency, that a small group of physicians and nurses and pharmacists who live near the clinic would try to get to the clinic in the the event of a crisis. And they had pre-counseled all of their patients that, if there is a crisis, we'll get people there so that you can get your medicine so that there wouldn't be an interruption in their medicines. So uh, the, when, after the earthquake, they, the team, the emergency team, went into action, and the next day they made it down to the, to the clinics and uh, started seeing their usual HIV and, and tuberculosis patients, but then when news got out that there's a medical clinic open, they began seeing patients with trauma, as, as your, your previous guest um, described, head wounds, fractures, amputations, everything, crush, severe crush injuries. So they started working, taking, doing the best they could. We did, did not have an operating room at the, at the Jeskio Clinic. Uh, So they just started bandaging people, doing their best they could. Then uh, Dr. Pop and the team reached out to the United States Embassy and said, we've got patients coming in our door. We're taking care of them. We have a large, several large fields right next to the clinic. And so we reached out to the United States Embassy and, and said that we could serve as a site and as a platform. Uh, for one of the Health and Human Services mobile uh, field hospitals. Just to paint the picture here, because you mentioned the the Jeskio Centers, what I think a lot of our listeners don't know is that the Jeskio Centers 
are the first institution in the world dedicated to fighting HIV and AIDS, and they were around since 1982. But what I find really you know, fascinating about this is given all the other things that they had to worry about in this acute care setting, were they still able to continue their core mission while adapting into what appears to be this field hospital and refugee camp? Uh, yes, they sort of divided up the staff and, and half the staff was working with the field hospital doing triage and and also then once the hospital opened and there there was then on the fields around us about 5,000 uh, refugees came and so providing, so part of the staff was providing them water and providing them services uh, and then uh, part of the staff continued the core missions of providing uh, HIV medications and tuberculosis medications. Uh, again, if, if, those, if those medications are interrupted, uh, it's not death the next day, but it, it's you know, within weeks or months, those patients are going to start suffering. Uh, so they were able to maintain the outpatient clinics and maintain a, a drug supply and uh, as of now, 85% of the patients who, who were scheduled to come and pick up their medications have gotten their medications, and approximately 15% uh, are unaccounted for. What's the current state of food and supplies and security and things like communication at your medical compound? What do you need? Pretty much everything. Um, the, it, the security... Uh, is, is a little bit better, but continues to be a problem because the, it's a campus uh, where uh, um, where the clinics are, and the walls um, surrounding the campus in several areas collapsed, and so and so it is now just open to the the street. We're um, in the heart of Port-au-Prince, and so there are it's a very 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 poor neighborhood. Uh, with tens of thousands of people um, living around uh, the campus. And now you have um, this refugee camp, and that is just sort of is open to the street. So at night, there are no lights. Uh, it's pitch black in that camp, and there's no security for, for those refugees. Um, we are working with uh, the various international agencies, um, to get more security, to get tents, to get uh, more food. Um, we're working on that. It, it's, it has been, it's been slower than we wish. I, I, you know, we do not have tents for all our people, and we're, we're terrified that it's going to rain. Um, we need more food. Uh, we uh, really need more medications, and we are struggling to get those shipped down and uh, to identify them at the airport and pull them over to our clinic. I think the message that we're hearing for our listeners is we need to remember this is a marathon, not a sprint. This is a long-term project we're hearing. And we may not be covering this every week, and neither will the media, but we can't forget about this. Absolutely. I mean, this is I think in the first few days we we were it was dealing with the acute traumas and and stopping the bleeding and 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 we were in sort of a 24-hour cycle. 
but we're, we're looking now at thousands of people who have had amputations or are paralyzed who've, uh, who have severe orthopedic um, um, problems now who are going to need rehabilitation, who are going to need to be reintegrated back into their communities. We have thousands of refugees who do not have a home, do not have jobs or businesses. They're going to need to be reintegrated back into their communities. We need to put a post-it note up on all our bulletin boards that says Haiti and not take that down for a while. Yes. At the very least, I would say. Yes. Well, Dr. Fitzgerald, I wish we had more time to speak to you, but we want to thank you again for joining us today. Thank you. We've been speaking with Dr. Daniel Fitzgerald from Weill Cornell Medical College. And a reminder to our listeners to check out Cornell's efforts in Haiti at www.weill.cornell.edu slash global health. And now we'd like to welcome Dr. Louis G. Zirkel, Jr., a board-certified orthopedic surgeon in private practice in Richland, Washington. He's traveled the world teaching orthopedic surgery in developing countries and helped start SIGN. That's short for Surgical Implant Generation Network. Louis, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you very much. Thank you, Louis. Uh, first off, can you give our listeners a quick preface on how you founded this organization and then what the sign technique is uh, so we'll have some background for your relief work in Haiti? And, and if you could just you know, overview it in about a minute or so so we can get really to your work in Haiti. A sign was started because we believe in a quality of fracture care. Uh, in the developing countries, the people have to buy their own implants before surgery. So we feel that uh, donation is the best way to go so they don't have to wait to get the money together to pay for it. We then designed a way to treat fractures using the IM nail interlocking screw fixation, which doesn't need a C-arm, doesn't need electricity or any of the conveniences we have in, in our country. So this uh, can be used uh, all around the world no matter what the facilities are and uh, it's very helpful. We also insist that the surgeons send follow-up x-rays and reports so we can judge the effectiveness of it. Well, we hear that you just returned from a two-week trip to Haiti and plan to go back soon. Could you tell us about your initial experience arriving and working through the immediate aftermath of the earthquake? It must have been overwhelming to see these thousands of patients in need of surgery all at once. How did you cope? Well, I think you have to cope by doing one patient at a time. We also tried to go where we would be most used and ended up uh, going to three different hospitals and ended up uh, teaching the sign technique on the comfort and they're continuing to use it. Our goal is to teach these surgeons and they will continue to use it so we can multiply our effect. So we understand that Sign has four locations set up in Haiti. You, you mentioned the comfort of the USS Comfort, and there's also three hospitals in Port-au-Prince, including St. Damien's, where our first guest is stationed right now. What are your capabilities at these locations? Well, we established those four, and we had three more prior to that. Uh, this, this was my uh, third trip to Haiti. And uh, what we want to do now is, I, I, it was well pointed out, that this... Uh, problem is a continuum, and the fractures have changed. The fractures are now stuck in a bad position, so our engineers are at this present time developing and manufacturing a, a clamp to pull a bone out to normal uh, length so we can, so I can return again and provide these clamps to our existing programs and then start new programs. 
Well, tell us about the process of setting up one of your programs on location. What personnel are needed? What resources? How do you do it? Well, first thing we do is we have to be invited. It's, it, it's, uh, that's a very important aspect. And, and we go in, we teach the surgeons how to use our technique. It's very technique sensitive. In other words, it involves tactile feeling uh, rather than looking at uh, an X-ray or a C-arm when you're doing the procedure. This tactile sense is something you can develop, uh, and once you've done that, it makes surgery a lot more fun. So we teach the surgeons, and then we watch them. We really stand behind the local surgeons. And my hope is, it's been pointed out that this is a continuum, my hope is to start a, a, a program there behind the local Haitian orthopedic surgeons and work with them uh, to continue the care. So why don't you tell us what your immediate versus longer-term needs are in continuing to provide this orthopedic care in Haiti? What is it that we, our listener base, can do to help? Immediate is to continue the ongoing treatment. In other words, there are some fractures that haven't been treated at all. The long-term will be to handle the complications that have occurred, the slow healing that occurs, which is inevitable in many fractures. We went through this same process in Pakistan and Java where, we ha- where we're still located uh, in doing sign surgery. So we want to start originally with the original injuries, and then we want to continue also training Haitian orthopedic surgeons. We, we'd like somehow to get them paid so that they'll remain in their country and uh, serve their fellow uh, Haitians. Does that mean that if we send money to your organization, that will help? No question. Okay, then listeners out there, here's another organization that we can send money to, and this is one way we can help. And it's really important to emphasize this training aspect of what you're doing, because that's something we often don't think of when we think of post-disaster relief. We think of everyone swooping on in there, shining white knights, trying to do everything they can, and then leaving. And what you guys are doing is providing experience training so that the people who are there, who are going to stay there after the media has completely become fatigued with this subject and the general public has moved on here, will be able to continue doing their work and doing it effectively. Thank you. That's exactly right. Right. You're setting up a medical infrastructure, which I think is key. So how are your priorities going to shift in the coming weeks in this infrastructure? Well, we're going to have to get partners to do this. Uh, I'm very impressed with the value of logistics, administration. We doctors think that we can do it all, but we need a lot of support people to do the job correctly because in an operating room, there's a lot of uh, processes that go on concurrently and and the administrators, logistics, nurses, anesthesia, all of these people have to come together to make it a successful procedure. These people will need trainings. This is, <clears throat> this is also a, an opportunity to provide jobs to the Haitians so they can be trained to do this. And I think we can get a, a well-running uh, organization, at least for orthopedics, which is what I do, uh, up and going within one year. Isn't it a tough job to be doing the job at the time and training at the same time? It sounds to me like you're doing a lot. Pulled in multiple directions. Yeah. Well, I love that. Uh, you're exactly right. I'm in private practice, and I've always done rather than taught. And, and I 
see the value of teaching, it's actually much harder because you have to walk a tightrope between not destroying someone's self-esteem and protecting the patient. But I really love to do that, and uh, I, I just uh, it's not hard after you get used to it. So we're going to ask you the same question. What have you learned about yourself in this process? If there was one thing you learned you didn't know about yourself. Well, I, as I was going down there, I read this uh, a book called Crucial Conversations, and it mentions that when you let, when you let your emotions get in the way, you kind of ruin the conversation. These may be small things, but I, I had to sleep on the floor, and I never knew how many men snored. Uh, and I had to also cope with the roosters who seemed to crow all night. I'm in, in, out in the country, and it's quiet at night, and I recognized the fact that I had to incorporate these sounds into myself in order to sleep. When I was out at a comfort, I, I slept uh, in the en- enlisted man officer place, and I sleep in a little box. I'm also claustrophobic, and I had to get over that. But I think if you reach down deep, there's always something there to pull you through. I also feel this is a spiritual journey, and and God comes through when you need him. I think it is for all of us. Well, thank you. Our thanks to Dr. Zirkel for his work over the decades, and especially in Haiti. If you'd like to help this organization, and please do to our listeners, go to their website, www.sign-post.org, and we'll have that on our website, correct? Yes, thank you very much. Thank you for being with us, and thank you for your work. It's my pleasure, and thank you. And that is about all the time we have today on this special look at the medical response to the Haiti earthquake. Our best wishes to all the volunteer responders and supporters of medical relief efforts underway now. Thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. You can follow us on your iPhone or Second Opinion Live at reachmd.com SOL. Please keep Haiti in mind. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. Don't forget about this. We're not going to. And thank you for joining us. Keep your radio dialed in to ReachMDXM160.